So our text this morning is in Mark, obviously, chapter 3, verse 7 through 19. 7 through 19. Let me read that for us now. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edom, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had disease, diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went on the mountain and called to him those who he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name the sons of Thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. I thought about doing 12 sermons, one on each uh, apostle. Just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. We're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord God, for being so consistent and so faithful in Scripture and in allowing us to understand what, what it means. We thank you, Lord God, that you did come into this world, that you did not leave it as it was, and that even now you are ruling it in every one of our hearts with compassion and love, with tenderness and care. And I pray, Lord God, that as we um, open up your word and as we search it, that it would search our, our own hearts and expose in us, Father, the things that are contrary to your will, things that are contrary to your character, and that you would feed us and remind us who we are in Christ so that we can continue to grow and be more like him. In whose name we pray, amen. Now, where we left off last week in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, Jesus' enemies are plotting to crush him. Now what we have in verse 9 is that he's threatened to be crushed by his own followers. A bit of foreshadowing here, I think, by Mark and what lies ahead for Jesus. It says in Isaiah 53, 5, he was crushed for us. So not only do you have the opposition uh, wanting to crush him, you have his own followers who want to be healed so badly that they don't even really care about whether they crush him to death. (laughs) Fascinating. The way of the cross is not about the last week of Jesus' life, what they call the passion. The way of the cross is a lifestyle. It's the real day-to-day life of our Savior and our King. Verses 7 through 12 are a transitional section that connect what's come in the past with what's coming in the future. It echoes the introduction and the early ministry in Galilee, as well as foreshadows the nature of the ongoing conflict. Now, this portion here, what we've covered so far is called the early ministry in Galilee. And this part is called the later ministry in Galilee. He hasn't left Galilee, but you're going to notice that there's two separate ministries because they're very different. What has come before even though it echoes in what is happening now and what is going to happen, it, he, he actually changes directions. He changes um, his tactics. He changes how he's going about 
confronting the authorities of the Jews. Mark 1.4, all the way back in the beginning, says that John was in the wilderness and people were flocking to him from Judea and Jerusalem. In Mark 3.8, people flocked to Jesus in the wilderness from Judea and Jerusalem, Adam and Tyre and Sidon. Jesus is attracting more people from a broader region than John was. He is, in fact, mightier than John, just like John said back in Mark 1.7. Remember, he said, someone mightier than I is coming. And not only has he proven it by what he's done, you see that more people from a larger region are all coming to hear him and to see him. In Mark 1.9, 112, 116, 135, 145, 213, and 223, Jesus goes out to the wilderness. That's how many times already he's gone out from crowds and from the synagogue and from civilization out into the wilderness. He continually goes there to commune with the Father, to establish his sonship, his exilic kingship, to separate from the hostile forces of man, to rest for a bit while he confronts the hostility of the demonic forces. Think about that. He's taking a break from the Pharisees by going out and beating up on some demons. (laughs) I think that's kind of funny. Jesus' meat is the will of the Father. His lifeline is communion with the Father, and that's why he goes again and again and again to the wilderness. He needs to get away from all of these people, all these distractions, all this conflict, and go out into the wilderness where all he has is his Father. And he needs to do it over and over and over and over again. We see Jesus continuing his pattern by fleeing from the synagogue. The word withdrew shouldn't be withdrew. It should be flee. He flees from them. They they want to murder him, and he runs away, essentially. He runs towards the sea, which is a symbol of the wilderness. Now, here we go again. Jesus went down by the sea in 116 and 213, and at that time, both of those times, what was he there doing? Recruiting. He goes down by the sea to recruit. And see, and we see again here, he goes down by the sea, and what is he doing? He's recruiting. In Mark 1, 21 through 28, Jesus heals a demoniac after doing some recruiting. In Mark 3, 11 through 12, Jesus is healing demoniacs after recruiting. Do we see that there is patterns, there are patterns emerging here? I, I like it. Uh, history does not repeat itself. It just echoes. It echoes and rhymes. That's what some historians say, and I think it's true. It just rhymes. He's not doing anything different. He keeps doing the same things. Remember what I said? I mean, the ordinary, the ordinariness of all of this. He just has a rhythm. He has a plan, and he's just plodding along, slowly, steadily, doing the will of his Father. Jesus' life is full of types and patterns. Mark has written an account that highlights the typology of his life. Jesus is the new Israel. He enacts all the foreshadowing. He lives the history of Israel, giving it its ultimate meaning. Okay? His actual, the actual events in his life, you find typologically in the Old Testament in the life of Israel as a nation. He's living, the, he's the new Israel. There's nothing new under the sun. He is the prototype of everything that Israel has done, and he now is coming into the land and actually doing the same things that Israel did throughout its own history. The five conflicts of chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 6, come to an end, and a new series of conflicts arise. He's he's had at them. He's coming out, and he's doing well. (laughs) He's had the best of it, and so now what he's going to do is he's regrouping to come back for another assault. 
He's not fleeing because he's afraid. He's not fleeing because he was defeated. In, in, in military tactics, this is very common. It's called probing the enemy. You take a small band, and you run out, and you hit the enemy real hard, and then you run away. And usually, they, that makes them angry, and so they follow after you. And it turns out that this little band that came and probed you was just a little band. And so you go running right into the guns of the enemy. And, and, and essentially, everything that's come before is just that. It's a cat-and-mouse game, like I've already said. He's, he's toying with them. He's gone into the synagogues, and he's probing them, and they think he's running away scared, but he's not. He's not running away scared. He goes down by the sea, and more people than ever gather around him. He's regrouping, is what he's doing, because now, now instead of just one guy, there's going to be a great multitude that they have to deal with, and these 12 preachers. So all they've done is, is, is made their problem worse. So what at first seems like retreat is not. It's just regrouping. In Mark 3, 7, the word withdrew should be fled. Should be fled. Now, the same Greek word for fled is used to describe Joseph's flight to Egypt. He flees from the Herodians in Matthew chapter 2, verse 14. And who is Jesus fleeing from? Well, the Pharisees have teamed up with the Herodians. See how even in his own life there's this echo, there's this rhyme. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word is used, the same word, flee, to describe David fleeing from Saul's attempted murder. Right? If you don't know the story, Saul does not like David, and he throws a spear at him and misses. And in 1 Samuel 19.10, David flees. But what does David flee to do? He fled from Saul after getting the bread from Amalek. Remember this story? A story that Jesus just referenced in Mark chapter 2, 25 through 26. There are all kinds of themes and echoes here from the Old Testament. David fled to the cave of Adullam. Okay? There's this attempted murder. David flees. David goes into the, the temple and eats the bread, which is the story Jesus just told, and then he flees. And right after telling this story, getting into it with the Pharisees, Jesus flees. Right? He, he is trying everything he can and everything he does to, to align himself with the memory of David because he is the greater David. Now, in 1 Samuel 22, 2, this is what it says of David fleeing to the cave of Adullam. And everyone was uh, in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul, this sounds like a fun group, gathered to David and he became the commander over them. <laughs> and there were with him about 400 men. David fled to a tomb-like cave because the kingship of Israel was dying and rising again in David, just like it would in his son, Jesus. Jesus first flees to the sea, a place of hostility with the dark forces of Satan, before fleeing further up to the top of a mountain, a place symbolically connected to the meeting of God with man. Now, can you guys think of some mountains in the Old Testament where God and man meet? Yes, Theo can. Good. Excellent. Well done, wife. So is he fleeing because he's afraid? He goes down by the sea, and he, and he gathers a crowd there, and then he goes on to a mountain. Who is this guy, and what is he doing? Now, what's actually very interesting is at the time, if you wanted to get a band of, of, of ruffians together to take on Rome, the place that you ne nearly always went was the Galilean hills. So a quackpot in the hills uh, around Galilee collecting a bunch of misfits is not something new. Right? And, and, and there's parts of Israel's history he's living out here that aren't even recorded in the Bible. Because if you go to the intertestimonial period, that, this is what's going on. 
And so th there's a lot of people who think he is just a crackpot. This is why later they're like, who is this guy? If we just kill him, just like all the other crackpots who gather a little misfit band in the, in the mountains, he comes down. If we just kill him, the whole thing will stop. But he's not just another crackpot. He's not just another crackpot. He's up on the mountain. This is where God has always met with man. He met um, the king. Okay, sorry. <laughs> So here we have David fleeing, just like David, Jesus is fleeing. And what he's doing is collecting a bunch of people around himself. And he's not just the king of Israel, though, right? Because where did all of these people come from? Where did all these people come from? And what are they going to do? Well, it goes on in chapter or verses 7 through 12 to tell, uh, to tell us um, what is going on. Okay, we're going to back up for a moment. I'm sorry, I've lost my spot, but I've got it again. We're going to back up for a moment, and we're going to look at some things just in this first section of verses before we go on to look at what the mountain is. So everything that I've said so far is like an overview of where we're going. Okay, it, 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 at this point in the story, there's all kinds of echoes, there's all kinds of reverberation from what's already come, and, and it's a little unclear where the story is going to go. Why is he up on the mountain, and what is he going to do now? What is he going to do now that they want to actually murder him? Because that is a new element in the story. So if we look at verses 7 through 12, it says, He withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd came from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edom and from beyond the Jordan. And the great crowd heard all that he was doing. They came to him, and he told the disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Now, Mark cannot give us an unabridged life of Jesus. He can't tell us everything that Jesus did. Uh, John talks about this at the end of his gospel. If I wrote down, he says of Jesus, everything that Jesus did, the books would fill the entire world. And so this section, um, like everything that's happened before, is a bunch of little things kind of crammed together. It, it, some of these people have traveled over 150 miles. So it makes it seem like Jesus goes down by the sea, and then in the same afternoon, all these people just sort of come out there and gather around him. But this is a summary of what's been going on. It's a bridge between the synagogue scene and what happens on the mountain. In the face of what appears to be a triumph over the men hostile to his mission, Jesus flees to the sea. Now, what I like about this is, is this is a real temptation. Think about it. If you're the actual king, and, and you have people plotting your death, and you could, if you wanted, just call down a legion of angels. How tempting would that be to you? Right? At this point, you're like, oh, you guys want to kill me? You want to kill me? Oh, watch this. Right? He could just take control of everything. But he doesn't. He goes out to the wilderness because, as he's explained to other people, it's not his time yet. There, are, there is a bigger picture here. Right? This goes back to the, if, if, it, if it was just about Jesus dying, Herod could have done the job way back in the nativity scene and saved everybody a lot of trouble. But Jesus has something, a mission that he has to accomplish, and dying on the cross is the, is the end of it. Okay? It's, not the only, it's not like he just comes to die for us. He comes, and he has a mission that the Father has given him. And so he goes into the wilderness, submitting to his Father, submitting to his Father's timing. Now, all of these people who are coming to him, why are they coming to him? He's going out to the wilderness to reestablish his sonship. He's right. It's a kind of exodus. Well, all these people just want to touch him. 
They, they just want to be near him enough to be healed, and they don't care whether it kills him or not. This is why Mark is the only one that talks about this boat that they have. And so Jesus, who, who's willing to heal them, it says he heals them, he heals the demoniacs, but from time to time, in order to fulfill his mission, he's got to stay alive. It's not his time yet to die. And so imagine a crowd on the shore that's so big that they have to put him in a boat and send him out a few hundred yards, and he's got to speak from there to all of these crowds. That's a big crowd. That's a really big crowd. It's hard to imagine the size of this crowd. But what do they want from him? They don't want, right? What does he want to do? He wants to preach. He wants to teach. He wants to tell them about the kingdom of heaven that's come into their midst. What they want is their broken arm fixed. Now, this is reasonable. God cares a great deal about our physical well-being. I'm not in any way, shape, or form saying that he doesn't. But is that all he cares about? If you had to limp or drag yourself, right, into heaven, that would be okay with God if it meant you were coming to heaven. (laughs) Right? He cares about your physical conditions, but it's not all that he cares about. These people don't care about what Jesus has to say. They just want their problems solved. So think how much we come crushing Jesus with all of our desires for ourself. Heal me, fix me, fix this, fix that. And we don't care about what he has to say. So this crowd that's following him is hostile. This crowd that's following him, right? don't be deceived by it. The Pharisees are deceived by it. They take it personally. Look at all the crowds following them, and nobody is coming to see us. It's personal, and, it's, and there's pettiness and je- jealousy. Imagine one university complaining about how the other university down the street is getting all the students. That's essentially what they, why they hate him. How dare them go to this unlearned guy when they could come here to the university of us? This crowd doesn't want him. They want what he's offering on one level, which is physical healing. They don't don't understand it. They don't stop to think about what this might mean, about who this person is. This guy can heal, right? Think about the medical, um, the quality of medical care (laughs) at this point. Think about it, right? It, It was advanced for their time, but think how crude it would have been compared to what we have now. And here's a guy that could simply say, hey, take up your mat and walk, even though you've never walked before, right? We would all want to go out and see that guy. But, but we are like this crowd. We're just this faceless, nameless rabble who just want what Jesus is offering on one level without waiting around to hear what he actually has to say. And, and so often our prayers are about, right, selfishly, we just want him to fix our problems. We just want him to fix our problems. Jesus' withdrawal to the lake signals an important change in his evangelistic strategy. The synagogue no longer will play a role in his, in his ministry. He's left that last synagogue, and, it, and it's, it's typologically he's left the synagogue. He, he goes back one time, one time. It's briefly mentioned that he visits one. But other than that, right, everything now, he goes into the wilderness, he goes to synagogue. Wilderness, synagogue, wilderness, synagogue. He's abandoned the synagogue. Forget the synagogue. And I think partially now, right, they probably think they've won. Well, he's not coming back here causing any more trouble, except now he's up on a mountain commissioning 12 other guys to go preach. That's not good news for them. He has withdrawn from the institution that had been the center of Jewish religious and cultural life for hundreds of years. Right? This guy can't possibly be a real Jew because he's abandoned the synagogues, which has been the center of cultural religious life for hundreds of years. 
And for a moment, they're probably just relieved. They don't even get the import of what's happened. The conspiracy between the Pharisees and the Herodians elevated the conflict to a new level. Up to this point, Jesus had faced opposition from religious groups, the scribes, the scribes of the Pharisees and the Pharisees, but now for the first time, representatives of the royal family have taken notice, and that is never good. It's never good. Uh, this is well known. If you're, if you're a state outlaw, you're doing pretty good. If the federal government gets involved and starts doing a manhunt, it's not good. Right? You can hide from the county sheriff pretty easily, but it's kind of hard to hide from the FBI and the ATF and the CIA because all, you're, like, you're like, remember that guy, the kid who was stealing all the airplanes? This was like years ago. He was some teenager. And he was living out on the peninsula in the islands. And he actually was having a good time of it. I remember this. I remember, man, every, every couple months you hear this guy steals a plane. He's out in the woods. Everything, he must have been having a good old time. And it went on and on and on and on and on. And then he broke federal law. And I remember they found him in like 10 days. Right? For months he's out there running, running around, running amok. And the federal government comes and it takes 10 days. Partially why Jesus is telling the demoniacs to be quiet, partially why he wants to keep a little bit low profile, he wants to go out into the hills, is because now the federal government has taken a notice in him. And that is not good. Because Herod, at this point, could say, hey, uh, I need help from the Romans. And if, right, the Romans have enough soldiers to come out into the hills and to actually find him. That's what's going on here. The difference was the local authorities, who he could easily outsmart and outwit, now it's gone up a level, and so he's got to go up a level. He doesn't back down. He doesn't hide out for a while. He's going out into the hills not to just disappear for a bit until things cool off. He's like, oh, you guys are going to go big? I'm going to go big. You guys going to take this up a notch? I'm going to take this up a notch. It's fascinating. He doesn't back down. But he, he has a reason to be nervous. A faction associated with the royal family has aligned itself with representatives of the religious party. You couldn't get these two groups to agree on anything, but they can agree on the fact that Jesus needs to die. That would make me very... If, if two people can find peace over the death of one person, right? two groups who don't get along on any level suddenly are fellows, strange bedfellows. And, and this is an old thing in warfare as well. The, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Right? This is how we ended up aligning with, of all people, the Russians during World War II. The enemy of the, my enemy is my friend. And so, it, it, and what that does is it creates a lot of weird instability, actually. Who is against who here? Who is with who? It's, it's very strange. Now, this other group that you have, right? You've got people planning his death. You've got this crowd that's coming from 120 miles, 50 miles away. Right? They've covered this entire... Edom is a, is a large district. They've, they're coming from the north. They're coming from the south. They're coming from the west, the east. And then you have this other group, these demoniacs. Now, they're not falling on him to crush him because they want to touch him. They're falling down before him. They're falling down before him. And, and the word fall down in Greek is only used like four or five times. And, and it's always when, when one authority sees a greater authority. They fall down before them. Now, what I like here is, is there's, it's very strange about the naming. I'm going to go back to this for a moment. Because they say, oh, it's the Son of God. And they're the first ones to actually say it in the story. And we're thinking, oh, cool, we're getting somewhere here. The revelation of Jesus is going somewhere. But the naming of something gives you authority over it. This is why in, in um, texts from the time when they would perform exorcisms, the idea is you have to figure out the name of the demon. 
This is why Jesus later in some of these, he's asking the name of the demons. Because once he gets the name, he, he names something. Once you know its name, you have some authority over it. Now, this is strange to us as moderns. But I mean, think about how much authority you have over your own children when you're naming them. Right? It's very prophetic. I always find that somewhat fascinating. If you find out what people's names mean, uh, how prophetic that actually turns out to be. But think of Adam in the garden. To show Adam who he was, his authority over this planet that God just made, he brings all the animals to him and has him name them because there's a power in naming. So even as these demons are falling down before Jesus because he is Jesus, they're, they're at the same time attempting this sort of uh, trick to take possession over him, to take power over him, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. It's laughable. He does, and he hardly notices. Now, what's fascinating about this is in Daniel chapter 10, there's this very strange account of an angel who is coming to visit a prophet. God sends an angel to give a message to a prophet. And the prophet's waiting, and the prophet's waiting, and the prophet's waiting. And finally, the angel shows up. And he says, listen, I'm sorry, I was, I was on my way down here, and I got stopped by the prince of Persia who fought me for 21 days, and so I'm late. And the prophet's like, oh, okay, well, I'm glad you're here now. I'm like, wait, what? That's a very strange story. Turns out the prince of Persia is actually uh, the demon who is possessing him, who was fighting against this angel, is Satan himself. The prince of Persia in the period of Daniel and that is, is possessed by Satan. We're going to get more into that when we talk about exactly how Jesus defeated the strong man. But in that story, you've got angels of God fighting against fallen angels, and, it, and they go on and on and on. It takes 21 days to defeat them and make it through. Jesus here, how long does it take him? Right? Just they see him and they fall down before him. He doesn't even have to fight them down to the ground. They see him and recognize who he is. They fall down before him. And then in an instant, he casts them out. Now, I am uh, of the mind here. I don't think all the the, the demon stuff is witnessed by anyone there at the time. I think people are coming to him, and there's, these, there's interactions that people can see with the naked eye, but what's recorded about them having these conversations is not something that people can hear with their naked ear, because I think it would have created a much larger stir. There's some dispute in the commentaries about this, but I think it's the only thing that makes sense, because nobody ever makes, right, like, what happened to Joe? Like, why is he suddenly talking like he's a demon? I, I think there are people who are possessed by demons, and there's this spiritual conflict going on between them and Jesus, and everybody else around them can't see it. Because otherwise that would be a little freaky, wouldn't it? I mean, wouldn't the crowd stop and be like, whoa, whoa, I rode over here with that guy. <clears throat> but there's none of that. There's none of that. And here Jesus is demonstrating his authority, not only over the Pharisees and those guys over the synagogue, but here over the demons. Who is this guy? And exactly what happened out there in the wilderness? Well, we're going to get to that later, but for now we're going to proceed. The power of evil is broken. It is a compelling sign of the imminent triumph of God's reign. A new king is present. He doesn't start with the Pharisees. What must have happened in that struggle in the wilderness back in chapter 1? Now that Jesus has defeated the king of this world, Jesus is establishing a new house to rule the cosmos. And it begins by reconstituting Israel as the household of God, by rejecting it entirely in its Old Testament form and expanding its size to include all tribes. Jesus is resetting the typeface of typology, and he is writing a new chapter in the salvation of man. He's reconstituting who the people of God are. 
Remember, the wine of the new covenant is going to need a much cleaner, much newer, much larger wineskin. So he said that a few half a chapter back. You can't put new wine in old wineskins. You can't take new cloth and put it on old, old clothing because it, it'll tear. And this is what he, now what he's doing is he's doing it. He's gone into the synagogue and he said, that is a rotten and filthy place. If I pour new wine into this, it's going to burst and it's going to be bad. So what I need to do is go out and create new wineskins. A new people of God. A new Levitical order. And then that's what we find in the very next section. Beginning in verse 13, it says, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. They came to him. And what, what was he calling them for? To appoint them to go into the world to do the things he's doing. And he lists all the names. I'm not going to get into all that. Uh, there's, uh, that's a fascinating thing. If you want to know something that you could spend a little time on, the lists of the disciples in the different um, Gospels aren't exactly the same in every one of them. So there's a little bit of work to be done there about who's who, because part of what Jesus does is, is again, he's not exact. He, like, he gives people names here, and he gives people names there, and he's got nicknames for nicknames and nicknames, and it's a little confusing sometimes who they're talking about. So I'm not going to get into all that. But what is he doing on this mountain? He's gone up to this mountain, and he's called out of this huge crowd a few guys. And it's not like back where he, he orders them to just follow him, and then he walks away, and they've got to follow him. He's bringing them into a new kind of fellowship now. He's making something new. The setting for his appointment is the mountain, which is meant to be reminiscent of the setting for which God communed with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with the nation of Israel, and now Jesus. Every time God is about to do something new, he meets with man on a mountain. Psalm 121, verse 1 through 2 says, I lift my eyes to the mountains. Now that's an ascent psalm. And it's an ascent psalm because when we are going into the household of God, we remember the mountains. We look to the mountains. And, and it's not just because they would look out the window and see mountains. It's metaphorical. They would think of all the various mountains that God had met with man. And when you're going to go see God on his mountain in, in, in the new heavens, you should think of all these covenantal mountains that have come before. So what we have here is Jesus is meeting with God on a new mountain. He's doing something new. The call of the 12 in 314 is markedly different from the character of the calling of the fishermen or Levi. This is not a demand. He is commissioning them to share in his authority. Think about that. He's not just giving them orders. He's bringing them into his, into his presence. He's creating a new relationship with them so that they share authority. What kind of supreme authority ever shares his authority? Right? Who has, who has, uh, Hitler didn't share it with anybody. It, it, the Communist Party, no way. Right? At the top is a guy, and that guy runs everything. Now here Jesus is, and he flees onto the mountain because he, what he wants to do is expand the problem. He's a problem for all of the powers that be, and he wants to make the problem worse. And the way that he does it is by in, empowering other people, by giving them the authority that he has. It's not something to be grasped onto, remember, it says in Philippians. He doesn't mind sharing it. He doesn't mind sharing it at all. What's fascinating about this is the apostles have taken the place of the synagogues. He's given them this, go out and you're going to preach. You're going to go out and you're, you're going to preach and you're going to cast out demons. Well, all of that has taken place in the synagogues so far. And so he's like, forget those. We'll do it our own way. 
I'm going to give you guys the authority to go out and preach and cast out demons and forget the synagogues. We're just going to do it in the open air. But he lives in community. He's not an isolated prophet. Okay, this is, Muhammad was like this. Muhammad would sit in a tent and just write orders. Nobody came into his fellowship. Nobody came into his council. He just gave everyone else instructions, and if they didn't obey him, he chopped off their arms, he chopped off their heads. But Jesus is, is creating a family. He's creating a family. Now, the Greek word for the church, for church, is ecclesia. The word is made up of a prefix and a root. The prefix is ex, which means out of. And the root word is a form of the verb kaleo, which means to call. Therefore, the ecclesia, the church, means those who are called out. We're called out of this large crowd. We're called out of the world to come up onto the mountain to join God, to join Christ, who is the ladder between heaven and earth. This is what the whole church is. It's not just these guys. He builds on the foundation of these guys. All of you were called out of the world to come up onto this mountain to commune with the living God. To join Jesus who bridges heaven and earth, to join in the communion of the Father, to be joined to Christ in union as the bride of Christ, to replace the synagogues. This is what we are. We're called out to replace this old way of doing things with a new way of doing things. Forget the priesthood. You're all priests now. Forget the old way. Learn the new way. Individual men become a nation. Become a nation. Right? And it's no secret, it's no surprise that he chooses 12. Why would he do that? Because how many tribes were there? No wonder his family thinks he's crazy. So all these other crackpots who go into the Galilean mountains to get a band of troops together, to, nobody ever goes quite as far as Jesus does. They, they would think, right? they would never dare have 12 disciples. Because they like symbolism, but they, they would be a little afraid to assume that kind of a symbolism upon themselves. It's fascinating because he, he has no problem with this. We're going to do, a new, we're going to do something new. We're, going to, we're not going to just completely do away with the old. It's going to look a lot like the old, but it's going to, it, it's going to be new. It's going to be old, but it's going to be new. So I'm going to take 12 guys, but it's not 12 guys who are the sons of the same father. These are the sons of the same father, but it's spiritual reality now instead of physical. Remember John the Baptist. He was the son of a priest, but he wasn't amongst the priests doing the work of the priest. He was out in the wilderness doing something new. Jesus is now, at this point, rejecting the old system and going with something new based on the old one. And this is what the Old Testament says he's going to do. In the stump of Jesse, who's David's father, in that stump, right, you've got to cut down the old tree, and out of that stump is going to come a new tree. I worked for an arborist many years ago. I was terrible at it. But I was fascinated by this. There's some bush that looks okay, and the arborist is hired to make the bush look nicer. And so the first thing he does is he cuts it down to what looks like a standing stump. I was shocked by how much he cuts off the... I was like, okay, they're paying you a lot of money, and you just killed their plants, man. You just killed all their plants. So we go about our work, right? And the next summer, I remember, one day, he's like, I'll buy lunch today. So we go out for lunch, and then he just drives around, and, he's, and he drives up to the house that we'd worked on the year before, and I couldn't, I was like, oh, look, man, you killed their plant, and they had to get a new one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I remember, so <laughs> I, 
I, I was kind of a crazy teenager. And I remember coming home with this knowledge. And I was like, Mom, I'm going to take care of all your plants. And I went out there and I did this. And she wasn't pleased. Because she thought the same thing I thought. You just killed them all. It's a bunch of stumps sticking out of the ground. And this, this is the thing that the people of God always have a hard time with. It's what we want to reject. We want to just keep things comfortable and as they are. But the only way to get right, the, the root, a new root out of the stump of Jesse is to have a stump, which requires cutting the tree down. Have you ever done this? I, I, again, he would do it. There's some tree would grow the wrong direction, and he would cut the thing off. And, and I'm like, man, you just, why didn't we just get a new one? Well, watch. And, and over a couple of years, he would direct the tree to grow in the right direction. And that is what Jesus is rejecting those who have rejected him. Forget the synagogue. Forget the old way of doing things. We're going to cut that tree down. And what we're going to do is grow a new tree that's way bigger, way more beautiful, and that all the nations of the whole world can gather under. Right? Remember what he said to Abraham, God. He said, you're going to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. All of them. And, and this is what is so confusing now even to us. Right? Where is Israel? There is an Israel, and where is it? It's in the Middle East. And it's a secular, it's a secular government, and, and people think that's Israel. But that's not Israel. Right? Most of those people aren't even really Jews, which is a whole thing I'm gonna, I, I could get into. But at this point in Jesus' life, there aren't 12 tribes anymore. There's two and a half. So what do you think thousands of years later? Do you think those two and a half tribes stay pure? No. Jesus comes to his own, and his own want nothing to do with him. And he says, okay, well, you're just like the Assyrians now. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to start over, and I'm going to expand this program to everybody. And I'm going to start with these 12 misfits. Think about that. right? The, the greatest miracle Jesus ever performed was making those 12 guys into somebodies. Right? And it's no different than the people sitting in this room. He says, follow me and I will make you. It's what he's going to make them. That's what makes them special. Right? Peter is not the guy who <laughs> you're going to want to pick. Right? You just see him and you're like, yeah, I want that guy on my team. But under that rough stone, right, like an artist, Jesus could see the angel that he was going to carve him into, the messenger. Give me this rough rock and I'm going I'm to make a beautiful statue out of it. Some, uh, something that will go on to be a pillar in heaven. Again, C.S. Lewis uh, also said this. How he finds it fascinating that people are like, oh yeah, when I get to heaven, the first thing I want to do is, is talk to St. Saint, Saint Paul. Bring me St. Paul. That's going to be fascinating. I'm going to ask him about some of the things he wrote that are a little weird. If you saw, by the time you got to heaven, he's been there so long, right? he's been standing before the presence of God waiting for the resurrection so long, he will look more like Mount, the majesty of Mount Rainier. The glory that he will have by the time we think about that. And it starts, who does it start with? A murderer. Jesus wants to make something new. And what he starts with is rough stone. And he carves it and shapes it and molds it into something that is going to last forever. He comes in and he cuts the tree down, and, and from it, he, he grows up a new and beautiful tree which all the nations of the world gather under. Now, raise your hand if you're a Jew. Raise your hand if you're the tribe of Judah. 
Is anyone in here from the tribe of Judah? Benjamin? We'll even take Nephtali. Daniel? No, you don't want to actually be part of the tribe of Daniel. That's another story. No one here is a Jew. You're all Gentiles. In the Old Testament system, how hard would it have been for you to get into the temple or to go up onto the mountain with Moses? Oh, Moses, you're going up to see God. Well, I'll go with you. No, even the Jews saw what Moses was doing and said, please, don't let us ever hear this voice again because it will kill us. Jesus takes rough stone and he shapes it and molds it into pillars on which he builds. And you who were not of the people of God, you who were not of the household of God, you who were of the disgusting tribes of the world have been called out of that, up onto the mountain with Jesus. You're given his authority. You're given his sonship. You're given his righteousness. To do what? He calls them out to do what? To send them out. To send them out. Well, to do what? Well, what is he doing? What is he doing? Is he loving the person right in front of him? Is he serving the people all around him? Is he a faithful husband? Is he a faithful son? Is he obedient and cheerful and patient? Is he just running off doing whatever he thinks he should be done at the moment? Or is he following a plan? And he's doing it in the most ordinary and mundane ways, right? Think about this. The king of the universe at one point is sitting around a campfire on a mountain in Galilee and you're like, this is, this is the revolution? This is the revolution? Right? <laughs> I just imagine mother with sharpened sticks, like roasting fish. And you're like, what? This, this, this doesn't seem like it has enough pizzazz to get the job done. Right? And we 